Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Ten, twelve through 19. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. It's the word of the Lord. Well, there have been a handful of moments in the life of our church that were just definitive moments. I remember the first time. It's kind of toasty, isn't it? Okay. We'll fix that. Um, there have been a couple of moments. One of them, I remember the first time I walked into this building. Uh, it was in, I think, something like April of 2017. I remember there, were, there was pink carpet in here. There were fake trees everywhere. There were American flags everywhere. Uh, in fact, my father-in-law was with me, Bob, and there were a bunch of choir robes in there. We have a picture. I should have brought it. We have a picture of us in the original Ascension Church choir robes, which is really fun. I remember the day we ripped up the pink carpet, another definitive moment in the life of... Who was here to rip up the carpet? Okay, that was really fun, and we probably all, like, inhaled lead-based, <laughs> like, adhesives. Another definitive moment, I remember, you know, launch Sunday, a big one. We've had all of these, but today is another one of those defining moments, because today we've all survived the snowstorm of 2019, <laughs> and we came out on the other side of it, and I'm just so honored to share this moment with you. Uh, thanks for being here. So in 1984, Columbia Pictures uh, re released this film uh, featuring Bill Murray called The Razor's Edge. I bet hardly anybody has heard of The Razor's Edge. It's a really, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful film. It was Bill Murray's first dramatic role, and he was dead set on producing this film. He really, really wanted to make it. The problem was no uh, production companies wanted to. They were shopping the script around to everybody, and finally, Columbia released it, but only uh, if Bill Murray was, was willing to star in another movie that they were working on, which you may have heard of, uh, called Ghostbusters. So they, he agreed, they agreed to produce The Razor's Edge only if Bill Murray would be in Ghostbusters, and that went on to do pretty well. Um, but The Razor's Edge is this beautiful movie. It's on Amazon uh, Prime right now. It's a movie that Bill Murray felt really passionate about, and it's surprisingly reflective and kind of morose. It's a really meaningful uh, movie. And in the movie, Bill Murray plays this man, this character named Larry Darrell, who's this spiritual seeker. He, he was in World War I, and it really changed his perspective. And 
In the movie, he finds himself in France, and in France, he goes to this club where he sees a woman that he knew from back home in Illinois, a, woman, a character named Sophie. And Sophie has found herself through a whole crazy turn of events. She's had great tragedy in her life. She's lost her husband and her son in a car wreck. And she's living abroad, and she falls into this uh, really dangerous life where she's working as a prostitute in this club in France. She's addicted to opium. She's living under this really oppressive pimp. And Larry Darrell, played by Bill Murray, sees her, and his heart goes out to this woman that he knew from back home. And so the pimp comes up to, to Larry and says, would you like to arrange services? And he says, sure. And he kidnaps her and takes her from the club to his apartment. And she's kicking and screaming the whole way. She's in really bad shape. And Larry, played by Bill Murray, keeps her in his apartment and nurses her back to health, loves her back to life. He, he feeds her. He, like, when she's just like strung out, he, he puts her in a cold shower. And he keeps her there until she begins to gain perspective about what she's been through, and it changes her life. And there's this moment months after uh, Bill Murray's character first met Sophie where she says, she says, you've given me so much. And he says, it's easy to love somebody like you. But she is this response, who are you and why have you done this for me? And, and it's because he loves her. She was shocked because he was behaving as family to her who was not his family. And it's a really profound and beautiful moment. It ends up being a tragic story. But this idea of behaving as family toward those who are not our family undergirds one of the, the, the key ideas in Scripture that we've actually been reading about for a couple of months and may not have even known it in the process. And it's the idea of covenant, covenant. Um, this one a brilliant author, uh, Sandy Richter, wrote a book on the Old Testament called The Epic of Eden. If you ever want a, a deep dive that's kind of accessible on how to understand the Old Testament, I would highly recommend this book, Epic of Eden by Sandy Richter, Sandra Richter. And she talks about covenants as one of the major motifs of the Old Testament. And a covenant, in her words, is fictive kinship. Fictive kinship. Fictive sounds like fiction. Kinship is like family. It's this idea of behaving as family toward those who are not biologically family. And a covenant is one of the keystone ideas of the Bible. Even when we recited the words of Jesus here gathering at the table, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many. Uh, God made a covenant with Noah in, in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. God made a covenant with Abraham, and after God had rescued the Israelites from slavery, uh, God made a covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, and the people of Israel at Sinai. And, and a covenant is a, is a beautiful idea. In the ancient Near East, the covenants were common. It was, it was how you survived. A greater king would go to a lesser king and say, look, I'll protect you. I'll, when, the, when the other bad guys come, I'll stand by your side, but you pay me taxes and your people are forever, you know, my servants. So we'll protect you, but I'm going to get something out of this deal too. There was some mutuality. And God was using this form of a covenant that was common in the ancient Near East to set up a formal relationship with the nation of Israel. A God establishing a covenant with a nation was something that was unheard of. But in a covenant, you have stipulations. There are rules for how it works in both directions. And that is the law that was presented to the people at Mount Sinai. 
So God was saying, I'll bless you, I'll protect you, I'll fight your wars for you, I will defend you, but honor my law, keep my covenant, above all things, just love me. God was inviting Israel to join him in his mission to bless the nations and to get the people back to the garden, to renew creation that had become so uh, destructed. And lest you get like lost, and I know as we've been turning the pages as part of our year of the Bible, I know there have been moments where you've thought like this is really dry reading or I'm just overwhelmed by all of the commandments. And we have to remember that it's all predicated on grace. And so before Yahweh gave a single one of the commandments of which there are 613, uh, he said this in Exodus 20 verse 2. Before he uttered a commandment, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery in Egypt. God is stipulating the the terms of the covenant, but the covenant was predicated upon grace. So put your mind back in where we've been reading. There's this generation that walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They'd remembered what life in slavery was like, the the ten plagues. They walked through the sea. They came to Mount Sinai where God appeared before them in smoke and fire on the mountain. They heard the voice of God, and they trembled. They were terrified in the presence of God. They remembered what it was like when Moses went up, and he saw God, and he came down, and his face was so brilliant that he had to put a hood on because the people couldn't bear to look at him. This generation who heard the commands of God, who who heard the invitation of covenant said, yes, we will do it. The same generation immediately proved themselves incapable of obeying it. While Moses is up on the mountain and God is, is stipulating the terms of the covenant, they're making a golden calf as an idol and saying to each other, this is the God who led us out of slavery in Egypt. The covenant is amazing. The grace is amazing. But the people find themselves incapable of following through on it, incapable of of believing and trusting. And there was something that was wrong with them. They were incapable of holding up their end of the agreement. This covers the end of Exodus. This covers Leviticus. You get into Numbers. And now we find ourselves in the book of Deuteronomy. We're just beginning the book of Deuteronomy in this last week where the generation that followed, the sons and daughters of that first generation out of slavery in Egypt, have seen their parents all pass away in the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years because mom and dad and grandma and grandpa grumbled and whined the whole way. Even though, even though God provided manna before them to eat every day, even though God led them with a, a pillar of, uh, of cloud by day and fire by night and God promised to fight their battles, Uh, They they continue to whine and to rebel and to not trust. And so a journey that should have taken a matter of weeks took 40 years. And here on the edge of the promised land, Moses, who has seen what has happened with the preceding generation, is talking to this second gen and saying, oh, I hope it goes so much better for you. They're on the edge of the promised land, and here they're reiterating the terms of the covenant. Deuteronomy means second law. They're reiterating the terms of the covenant and inviting all of the people to renew their pledge of faithfulness to Yahweh and not follow false gods. They're about to go into the nation, this thing that uh, since Joseph, the people have left the land, but now this mighty nation is coming back. And Moses is saying, I really want this to go well for you. And so here in Deuteronomy 10, Moses is kind of segueing the first nine chapters of the book. He's been talking to the people and reviewing, here's, here's been our history for the last 40 plus years. Here's all that God has done, and yet here's all that your parents have done and you have done, all that we've done uh, to be faithless. 
And Moses doesn't want to overcomplicate things, so he says to the second generation of people, like, let me, let me try to summarize what's going on here for you. This is uh, Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 and 13. He says, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? What's his deal? What does he want? What's the bottom line? Fear the Lord your God. Walk in obedience to him. Love him. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. What's God's deal? What does he want? Love him. Walk with him. And what's the bottom line? It, this is ultimately for your own good. And as we turn the pages in Deuteronomy, we're going to find this idea of for your own good or so that it may go well with you again and again and again. In fact, seven times in Deuteronomy, after giving a command, Yahweh says, I'm telling you this so that it may go well for you. God's not just trying to be, he doesn't just need to be a dictator. He's not trying to just be the boss and establish his dominance over Israel. He's saying, I'm telling you these things because they're in your best interest. There's a way to live that leads to life. Choose that one. That's what Yahweh is saying uh, to his people. And then Moses gives this kind of meta perspective of Yahweh's relationship with Israel uh, as a whole. This is verses 14 and 15. He's saying, look, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them and chose you. He's pointing out how strange this whole relationship is. God owns everything. What do you honestly think that he's getting out of this situation? Everything belongs to him, and yet he chose you. He didn't choose another nation. He chose you. He loves you. And then he speaks, Moses speaks directly to the issue that had been the bane of their parents' existence. This is verse 16. So circumcise your hearts, therefore, and don't be stiff-necked any longer. This phrase, which is a weird phrase, it's a weird metaphor, uh, literally means uh, to cut away the thickening around your hearts. That there's something that has gone on within the hearts of the Israelites that's uh, making them stubborn, that's prohibiting them from obeying with, uh, completely and joyfully. It's a metaphor for removing those mental blocks that keep them from just wholeheartedly chasing after God's commands. It's an invitation to surrender, for, to invite God to let the roots of his word go down deep in their hearts. But then the text makes a really unexpected turn, as Cheryl read for us. This is verses 17 and 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the foreigner residing among you. It feels like, even as I studied this week, I thought that is a really unexpected direction for that text to go. It doesn't, almost doesn't feel like it makes sense. But if you remember the context of what covenant means, if you remember the context of what's happening in Deuteronomy... Moses has been reviewing all of the ways in which Yahweh has been behaving as family toward Israel who is not his family. This is covenant. This is the idea of fictive kinship. God chose to be family, to act like family toward Israel. He loved them. He set his affection on them. And all that he wants out of this deal is love in return. Love me. Serve me. Walk with me. And it's, this is ultimately for your own good. 
But then unexpectedly, Yahweh names three groups of people, uh, the widow, the fatherless, and the orphan. Three kinds of people who through of no choice of their own find themselves without family. And it creates this kind of logical bridge in the text from beginning to end. What does God want of us? The God who loved us and behaved toward us as family, we who were not his family, is inviting us to honor and love him by behaving toward others who are not our family as if they were. The widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner. And you put in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 10, the evidence of a heart that has been circumcised, the evidence of a heart that has been transformed by the love of God shows up in the way that we love those who are not family toward us and how we treat the most vulnerable around us. And here, again and again in Scripture, we see these three estates, the widow, the fatherless, and the immigrant or the foreigner. There's a relationship between how we love the vulnerable and how we love God. So we said earlier, there's 613 laws in, in the Old Testament, 613 commands that were explicitly given. Jesus was once approached by some Pharisees and said, well, which of those are the most important? And like a, a wise teacher, Jesus had a quick answer. This is from Matthew. Teacher, he was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. But then he links it with another. The second is like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. John, one of the uh, disciples of Jesus, said this in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Children, let's not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. The evidence of a changed heart, a circumcised heart, is demonstrated by one's willingness to share their material possessions, to show practical love to the vulnerable. And here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, it's named as the widow, the fatherless, and the foreigner. I've, uh, we, we've been around as a church for 14 months. It's been uh, just a ball. And one of the things I've loved the most about our church is there are times where, you know, especially last year, we were talking about going at a healthy pace. We want to be healthy. We have a, a value of, of health in our culture as a church. We want to be well. And, you know, John Orberg said, I don't want to do the work of God at a pace that destroys the work of God in me. And so, you know, I've been trying to appreciate the pace at which God is leading us. And there have been times where I'm like, Dang it, I wish that we had this in place or that in place, and maybe you've been irritated about that as well. And there have been those great moments where wise people in our church have told me, like, John, we're going at, at the pace of the Holy Spirit. God is going to make clear what we need to do. And one of those areas that for me has been a, a source of frustration because we've not made more progress has to do with the latter part of our mission statement. In our mission statement, we want to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel, for the renewal of all things. Ed wrote a couple brilliant pieces on community and on being shaped by the gospel on our blog, if you didn't see that. We've talked a lot about community. We're introducing ourselves. We're going out to lunch with strangers. We're, we're doing our apprentice groups. We talked a lot about being shaped by the gospel. 
I mean, doing the year of the Bible thing is certainly a big step in that direction. Our apprentice groups examining the narratives that we believe about God, taking on the Sermon on the Mount, these are all gospel-shaped community ideas. But we've talked little about what it means for us to participate in the renewal of all things. And how are we going to respond? And I've been, I've been trying to pay attention and listen to all of you as, as God's speaking to you too. And I was meeting with a mentor of mine not long ago. He said, one of the ways that you can discern how, and he'd been a pastor, one of the ways that you can discern how God is leading the church is just to pay attention to those whom God is sending. Who are the people that God is sending? And he, he gave a couple examples that were funny. If God sends 10 college professors to, to your church as part of your church, maybe God is saying you should be paying attention to campus ministry. Or if God sends, you know, 20 you know, counselors and therapists, maybe we should be paying attention to how we're supposed to respond to that or educators, things like that. And so I have been paying attention and, and, and you've been speaking and sharing about what's God, what God's doing. Early, early on, as I started working on Cornerstone full-time, it was, it was abundantly clear that there was a kind of person that God was sending to me. Uh, I was in Nashville, and I randomly got to meet this couple named Brian and Julie Mavis, who lead a national ministry called America's Kids Belong, uh, help, trying to help the church care about the foster care crisis and be a part of that. And I'm in an air, this is so funny, I'm in an airport in Denver going to Nashville and a friend from Tennessee calls me and said, hey, I want to meet you, I want you to meet this couple from Colorado. And they're literally walking up to my terminal, like as, <laughs> as I was on my phone with my friend from Tennessee, like they're standing in front of me right now. So I meet Brian and Julie. Um, I got to meet my friend Chris Campbell. Chris is here. Would you raise your hand for us, Chris? Got to meet my friend Chris about a year and a half ago, who works with the 111 Project in Oklahoma, trying to partner one church with one family to take in one foster child. And, and, and I've loved getting to listen to Chris over the last uh, year and a half. I've been impressed over the last uh, handful of months in particular, the number of families in our church who are uh, either pursuing adoption who are, or who have been foster families or are applying to be foster families, and, and I've been really s slow to respond, and I've just had this sense, you know, as we're going through the year of the Bible, and I read in Deuteronomy 10, gosh, God, it might be that you're trying to tell us something. It might be that, that you're trying to say something for us as a community with regard to uh, the foster care crisis in Oklahoma, and there's a good reason that we should be paying attention to this. Let me give you some stats about what's going on in Tulsa County alone. In Tulsa County alone, there are 1,371 foster kids in Tulsa County, the kids who are either living in a shelter or with a family or who need to be placed. That is just in Tulsa County. Let's go to the next one. 84 of these kids are legally free to be adopted. They don't have next of kin who are kind of in line or working toward, um, toward having, uh, having the, the child as a part of their family again. They may be older, uh, they may have, be part of a sibling set, and obviously, if it's possible, you wouldn't want to separate siblings. Uh, some of these kids have uh, special needs, physically or emotionally. Those are 84 in Tulsa County. Uh, next, we can see that uh, 42 of these are 17-year-olds. And If you pay attention to stats, the, the statistics on kids who age out of the foster care system, many of whom uh, don't end up in a forever home, are, are really disheartening and challenging. And the the, the variables for what life is going to be like for kids who age out of the system is, is, is heartbreaking. 
You know, next we can see uh, there are 24 kids living in Tulsa County, living in a shelter because there's no placement available. There's no one who's saying, hey, I'll do it. Next we can see uh, there are 508 kids from Tulsa County who have been placed out of the county. So they may have grown up in Tulsa where their, you know, their, their family may be, their siblings may be, their school, their friends, and yet they're moved to Pahuska or Tallahina or Lawton or all over the state because there wasn't a placement for them in Tulsa County. 508 have left our city, our county. And then finally we see that a large number of We talked about this three weeks ago, that a ton of these kids are LGBTQ, and they've been kicked out of their families, you know, some of whom are Christians. They've been kicked out of their families, and, and because of, of how they're experiencing the world, feel like there's, there's not a, a family that will welcome them. I think, my gosh, what an opportunity for us to abide by what we teach. What an opportunity for us to get, some, to, to get some skin in the game and to show love to our neighbors. Good gracious. This should not be. There wouldn't be a foster care crisis in Oklahoma if Christians cared. Uh, Chris's um, ministry at 111, uh, it's one church. If, if one church would identify one family to support one foster kid, this crisis is over. There's something like a 1,000 uh, placements that need to be made in the state of Oklahoma. There's something like 6,000 churches. If, if, if one church identified one family, supported one family, supported one kid, there'd be no foster care crisis. And we can't speak for anybody else. We can't speak for any, any other church, but don't, want, don't we want to be a church together that resolves to be part of the solution don't we want to be the kind of people who do the kind of things that tell the good news about Jesus? Don't we want to be the kind of people who take uh, kids in who need to know how deeply they are loved by God? And you might be thinking, just like I've been thinking, well, gosh, I've got three kids at home that are wearing me out already. I don't have the, I don't have the margin. Or there's so, many few, so much to be afraid of. And there may be good reasons you know, for you why you wouldn't take a step uh, to, to take in a foster child. But there are things that all of us can do. There are steps that all of us can take to be part of the solution, to obey uh, the teaching of Scripture here, to, to be mindful of the fatherless. First, you can pray. Pray for, pray for caseworkers who are driving sibling sets all over the state of Oklahoma because they can't find one house that will take in three kids. Pray for caseworkers who are way overwhelmed. Pray for kids. Pray for their parents that God would work in their lives powerfully. Uh, pray for other churches. Pray for those in our church who are taking in uh, foster children. Pray. A second, you can give. You know, there are, there are some opportunities we have as a church as, as folks raise their hand and say, hey, I'll take in a kid, but I need a crib in three hours. And someone will say, I can get you a crib within three hours. There are little things like that that keep a child from being placed in a home. Cribs, school clothes, things like that. There are things that we can do as a church to practically meet needs to empower families that are taking in foster kids. We can give. Third, you can volunteer your time. Uh, Chris has shared with me that a lot of the time uh, there will be kids sitting in the, the, the cubicle of a DHS worker who's making calls seeing if a placement can be made. 
You can go up to DHS or to Family and Children's Services and just play with kids as they're waiting to find their placement. It'd be amazing if we had folks in our church who said, I would love to be like a foster care like organizer or mobilizer in our church so that as folks take in children, hey, we've got meal trains for you for the next three months. Or, hey, uh, Sue, you know, you, can you help get a crib to wherever? It'd be amazing if people said, I would love to be a mobilizer, an organizer, so that we can practically help kids get in families and in homes. And then finally, you know, you can open your home. And sometimes it could be a, a long-term placement, or it could be a matter of we have a sibling set of, of four kids who have a placement on Tuesday, but it's Thursday, and they need somewhere to be for a couple of days. Could you be grandpa and grandma? Could you be uncle or aunt for three or four days? Or could you take in this newborn overnight until the placement is available? There's emergency, a response, there's long-term foster care. There are lots of things that, that we can do to be a part of the solution. And wouldn't it be amazing if we as a church, in view of the crisis in Tulsa County alone, said we're going to take an all-hands-on-deck approach to responding to the foster care crisis? When one of ours takes in a child, we pray for that child. We love that child. We, we have meals. we got school clothes. Whatever you need, we're there for you. We're going to be your church family to arrange playdates, to support, to do anything and everything. For those of you who are small government Republicans saying, you know, the government is doing too many things that the church needs to do, here's a great opportunity to be the church. For those of you who are staunch pro-lifers, what an amazing opportunity to be for the life of foster children. And for all of us who love Jesus, who want to, when we stand before the judgment seat, to hear our Father say, well done, good and faithful servant, we have an opportunity to respond in innumerable ways. Jesus told this story, this parable in Matthew 25 of, of the great judgment and separating the sheep and the goats and, and what, what delineates them, what separates them. This comes from Matthew 25. The king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it for me. We who have been treated as family by him who was not our family are invited to love and to honor him in return by treating those who are not our family as if they were. And this proves that the love of God has taken root in our hearts when we love the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. It's easier to hold a day of service where we wear matching T-shirts and we, we get our hands dirty for a couple of hours, and we take pictures, and then we go back to life as normal. Those are the sexy mission opportunities. But what is most needed when we're talking about deeply broken relationships and broken institutions and broken trust is the messy and the merciful work of entering into broken relationship systems and offering help and wholeness and demonstrating the love 
of God, especially toward the most vulnerable in our community. And now we know, and we're responsible for the information that we have, that there are many, even just, just in this category of foster kids in Tulsa County. The question for all of us will be, well, you may not take in a foster child, but what will you do in response to this opportunity as God leads us as a community? You've got a postcard in front of you in between all of the Bibles. And uh, you may say, like, I'm, God is working on my heart. Or you had no way of knowing this, but we had just been talking about this and praying about this. And there may be an opportunity for you to respond today. Maybe you'd be willing just to sign up and get an email from Chris at 111 and just say, like, like, tell me more. Help me understand what's going on. Maybe it's say, like, I, want, I, I promise that I will pray for foster children, foster families, caseworkers in the state of Oklahoma. Maybe you'd say, I would give my time to being with kids or to being an, being an organizer in Cornerstone. We really need a champion or a team of champions in our church to run with this. Or maybe you'd say, I want to learn more about what it looks like to bring a kid into my home. I'd love for you, if you would fill that out this morning, uh, Todd will be at the back with a bucket, and you can just drop that in. Chris, after the service with 111, is going to be just right up here by the, the banner here. If you'd like to visit with him, I'd love for you to do that. But uh, uh, Chris sent me this week a, a letter from a foster child in Oklahoma. And the, kid, the child was asked, what do you want in a family? What would you be looking for in a family? And this is the, the list that this Oklahoma kid shared. I want food and water. Don't hit on me. I want a house with running water and lights. I want love. I want mom and dad not to fight. I want no drugs. Don't kill my pets. I need help with school. Nice clean clothes. No lice. No bugs in house. Clean house. Uh, clean bed with covers. Don't sell my toys. I want to be treated fair. Don't get drunk. I want a TV in the house. Let me keep my games, school stuff, nice shoes, my own comb, soap, nice house, a safe uh, AC and heater, a coat, and a toothbrush. What step can you take? How can we show the love of Jesus? How's God inviting you to take a step, even if it's a small one, uh, to respond? And how can we do this together? Let's pray together. Jesus, we just trust that you're at work. Sometimes we ask you to do stuff, and you're like, didn't I already ask you to do that? There are lots of things that we can't control. Lots of things where we're just totally at your mercy and we're pleading for you to act. And yet there are also these opportunities that are clear and practical and imminent needs where you're saying, hey, hop on it, church. I pray today uh, for, for foster kids in Oklahoma. Lord Jesus, that you would mobilize and rally your church to be part of the solution. That they would know how deeply that you love them. That before the creation of the world, you chose them to be part of your family. And no matter what kind or unkind words have been spoken over them, you love them, you know them, you notice them, and you want them to be part of your forever family. 
I pray for caseworkers who are stressed out and who are in need of a break, who are driving all night to, to deliver kids to where they can find a placement. And I pray for us as a church that you'd help us to, to move forward courageously and obediently, whether it's to pray or to give or to open our home or to organize support. Uh, help us to respond, not out of guilt, but out of the deep love that you've shown us. For you who've loved us as family, may we love those who are not as if they were, and thus confirming the love of Jesus among us. Help us, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray.